Welcome to CLTV, a broadcast of Educator Innovator, powered by the National Writing Project. This episode is being recorded on December 5th, 2018, and is part of the 2018-19 Marginal Syllabus Project. Marginal Syllabus is a project that convenes and sustains equity conversations in the margins of texts online using the digital annotation tool, Hypothesis. I'm Joe Dillon from the Denver Writing Project, and I'm a co-founder of Marginal Syllabus, along with Ramey Collier. I'll be your host for the conversation this evening. We've got a great panel here to discuss this month's reading, which is What's Radical About Youth Writing, Seeing and Honoring Youth Writers and Their Literacies by Marcel Haddocks. We're excited to welcome Michelle to tonight's show, as well as Michelle King and Chris Rogers. I'd like to start by letting everyone take a moment to introduce themselves. Uh, good evening, everyone. Marcel Haddix. Uh, I'm at Syracuse University, where I am the chair of the literacy department and uh, co-director of the Center for Social Justice. And most recently, I became the president of the Literacy Research Association. So I want to thank you for, yay, woo-woo. I want to thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. And I look forward to discussing the reading. Hi everyone, I'm Michelle King, I'm coming straight from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm a longtime middle school teacher, so I am surprised that I'm here. Actually, no, <laughs> I'm actually very honored to be here uh, representing uh, the voice of uh, teachers, and I'm a history teacher, social science teacher by training, um, but currently enact my superpowers being a learning instigator and love activist, trying to bring love back into the world, um, but first starting right here at home in Pittsburgh. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi everybody, I'm Chris Rogers in Philly from Chester, Pennsylvania. And um, I think particularly this conversation of many roles I play is one as uh, a board member for the Philadelphia Student Union, does uh, youth organizing work. Um, and then secondly, I'm just starting my PhD in literacy at Penn GSC. Um, so it's, it's working on, you know, taking these different like literacy practice and youth organizing practices and translate them to research, just like Dr. Haddix. Good evening, everyone. I'm Ramey Collier. I'm an assistant professor of learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. As was mentioned earlier, I'm one of the organizers of Marginal Syllabus. And I have to say it's lovely to see uh, colleagues and friends on our webinar. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Terrific. Thanks, everyone. So what I'd like to do is just begin by um, asking Marcel to talk to us a little bit about the background of this piece, the writing of this piece, really anything you'd like to share. Um, sure. Thanks, Joe. Um, so as you've read in the piece, the Writing Our Lives Project um, formally began in 2009 when um, I moved here to Syracuse and immediately got involved with um, just community work around education for black and brown youth. Um, I myself am a mother of a now 17-year-old uh, African-American boy who loves to write, loves to read, 
And um, we've been through many things with his educational journey, including homeschooling him. And so I was looking for spaces uh, to work with other community members, parents, families, teachers, educators, around how to better the educational opportunities and outcomes for our children. And one of the things um, that immediately surfaced in some of the spaces that um, I was a part of was just, just the way that deficit narratives around um, black and brown children were, were circulating and also being internalized in terms of how we measure um, academic success and how we measure and value particular literacies over others. Um, and for many reasons, and you know, we can certainly talk about some of those things in this space today, but I wanted to be a part of solution. You know, I wanted to think about what, what capital and resources I bring um, as a former teacher, as a university professor now, and then also just someone who's really committed to, to youth learning as a parent um, to, to change the situation that was occurring here in Syracuse. And so writing our lives um, was one way to do that, starting with just informal writing workshops, uh, partnering with community spaces like the local library, um, youth centers, and offering uh, opportunities for young people to come and write. And one of the things that, that I know for sure is that young youth writers do not need adults' intervention to write, that they are writing, they are speaking their truths, um, and now, even if I, as I look over the, the arc of the past 10 years, the ways that social media, digital tools, um, you know, other kinds of social movements that, that occur, young people um, are definitely taking the lead and taking the initiative to get their voices out there via writing. I just feel blessed and fortunate that I've been able to help cultivate spaces that they feel uh, supported. Um, help to provide the resources for them to do the kinds of work that they want to do. Um, and that, that's where Writing Our Lives began. Um, we've had annual conferences. We've had um, summer youth writing institutes. Um, right now, I currently run a after-school Writing Our Lives program in a youth uh, residential youth facility for court-involved youth. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about just kind of how to frame my relationship still to this work, and even the notion of the, the piece around what's radical. So I think a lot of times when people hear about the work, they're just like, oh my gosh, how do you get you know, young people writing? And I'm like, they're, they're writing. <laughs> like the fact that, we, that we're so surprised um, really says something about us and the way we think about what counts as, youth, as literacy and youth literacies. Um, and in this, the after school program now, I'm always just so inspired. Um, as many of you know, I just came back from a long week at an annual conference with literacy researchers listening to the latest research. Um, and I was tired. And for me to come back on Monday evening and to be in the space of writing our lives with, with young folks who are telling their truths, who are inspired, who are creative, who are critical, it just rejuvenated me. So there's certainly a reciprocity of the experience. I, am, I feel blessed to be in the position to give, but I can't say how much I've, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how much I've received over the last nine, soon to be 10 years of doing this Writing Our Lives work. Just a point about the article itself, um, it's in Voices from the Middle, and I was invited by Tanya Perry, who many folks know in National Writing Project work, 
and Jamal Cooks to write this piece um, because they knew of the work. And we all have collaborated or, or presented together on the various projects that we're doing. You know, Tanya in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Jamal Cooks out in uh, California and San Francisco in that area. So they knew about the work and wanted to provide a space for me to kind of think through some of these issues. So I just want to give them a shout out to say thank you. Um, and there are other folks like Brian Crandall, who was, uh, who's in Fairfield, who has a writing project, who's been doing this kind of work that you know, we've worked together. And so I think we all have been in these ongoing conversations around how do we talk about this framework and this model? Because so many people want to do this kind of work um, and do it in a way that privileges and centers youth as the ones who are leading these initiatives and not adults just creating this for us, but for them, but us following their lead. Um, so I, I think I'll stop there for now, but that's, that's kind of the background into where the piece came from, where the invitation came for me to, to write the piece. Thank you for that. I think it's really helpful background and it will uh, springboard, I, I'm sure, a good conversation with our readers. This is the point at which we, we like to uh, just stop and explain a little bit about the Marginal Syllabus Project and what brings us here. So, Ramey, if you don't mind, would you mind just giving a little background about this whole Marginal Syllabus thing and what we, we think we're doing here? I, I will, um, and I'll keep it very brief because I'm eager to hear from everyone on the call. And again, Marcel, thank you so much for introducing your article. And again, we're just thrilled to have it as a part of our 1819 marginal syllabus. This project began in 2016, driven by educator interest to discuss educational equity topics. There was a need, we felt like, to have educators read consequential literature, talk about consequential literature, and really grapple and wrestle with many of the educational equity topics that define schooling in America today. And so we began to really bring together syllabi of articles that this group of educators felt was pertinent to consequential professional learning around equity topics. Briefly, the project's name, Marginal Syllabus, refers to three interpretations of the word marginal. When we partner with authors like Marcel Yu in this case, we're reading work, we're engaging with authors whose perspectives don't hold up the status quo of schooling, but really challenge the status quo of schooling, really bring a kind of marginal perspective to what many consider to be the kind of day in and day out of really inequitable American educational systems. Um, we're also, of course, having conversations with readers, like in this case, Michelle and Chris and many others, in the literal margins of online spaces. So once we've gotten a, a digital version of Marcel's article, I have of course have your printed out version, but when this kind of uh, scholarship goes online, we can begin to have conversations in the margins of those texts as a way of discussing these uh, various uh, and very important issues. And then lastly, we actually had those conversations using an interesting uh, free open source tool called Hypothesis. I'm not gonna get into the technical details of all of that, but it's, a, it's an open source technology so it's really kind of marginal to many of the commercialized educational technology trends that we also see in schooling these days. And so that brings together this kind of multiple perspectives on uh, being in marginal spaces, engaging with marginal perspectives that defines this project. And in this current iteration in the 1819 school year, uh, we're thrilled that not only the National Writing Project continues to host uh, this work as they did all of last year, but that also this year, 
all of the texts that we read, all of the authors that we will be engaging with are associated with the National Council of Teachers of English. And NCTE has now come on board as a partner uh, in this work. And so all eight monthly conversations, all eight texts, come from five different NCTE journals, like Voices from the Middle, where uh, What's Radical About Youth Writing appears. And we are working collectively with 19 partner authors over the uh, course of the entire 2018-19 uh, school year. And so again, we're thrilled to have everyone involved. I'm done talking. I think that's far too much uh, from me already. So I'm going to say that if you're looking for more information about Marginal Syllabus, follow our hashtag. We have a website online. I'm looking forward to the conversation with Michelle, Chris, Marcel, and everyone today. Thanks so much, Ramey. And this, and uh, having just thanked you, I think it's really important to thank Chris and Michelle for uh, being willing to jump into this conversation. Um, what I want to do now is what the project does, sort of, you know, large and in an open space, in an open way on the internet, which is just facilitate conversations between readers and potentially with authors. So just give, you know, give Chris and Michelle again, my thanks for turning up. I always like to say that I've, I've done the reading. Sometimes we only have one reader, so I get to play a bigger role. But as a, as a facilitator, it's just a joy to, to bring Chris and Michelle to this conversation. So anything you have in terms of your own reading or questions for Michelle or Marcel, excuse me, or whatever you've got. Might I offer Marcel that we start a band? Um, Michelle and Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, and I often get called Michelle, so I, I answer either way. <laughs> we could be the radical, the radical teachers. Um, so what I, I found what uh, I found quite beautiful about your work and what I found radical uh, was the notion that uh, your work is honoring the truth of young people. Um, honoring their lived experience and this idea that um, each and a, every one of us has a truth about what it means to be human in our particular bodies where we live our orientations class all those things and that that um, you put a preference on that and and say that we will work from there not you are uh, a neutral being and then when you come in the classroom let me teach you a skill that you may or may not know but it first starts with that you actually have a truth and actually found that that to be quite radical in a lot of spaces learning spaces we don't acknowledge that young people have a truth of of what it means to be in the world and also many tools that they've been cultivating over time of how to express that right um uh, what i also found radical about your work is this notion of holding space um, the intention to hold um space for the things that we value and listening which was a I also noted as like a superpower. I love the idea of we could just now name it radical listening um, uh, that I think that your work does. And, and then ultimately what it does, um, and I think I love the humility about your work and research, is to say to not go in simply to transform, but to be transformed um, by the space that you hold by listening and, and hearing young people. So that's what really resonated with me. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I um, I don't know if this is a point where I can comment back, but um, and because I don't want to dominate the conversation, but I really appreciate you highlighting those things because I think people don't realize like sometimes it's very simple things, but they're huge. Like they're 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 intentional, and they're very meaningful. Just the notion of like when we think about holding space, 
you know, the student, my graduate students that are in the course that I teach uh, that is connected to the Writing Our Lives Project, um, I talk to them specifically because these are teachers. These are folks who are in the classroom about how do you hold space? What do you, you know, how do you arrange the furniture? Uh, you know, how do you think about the, the lighting, the, the, the environment that you're setting? Do you have food and nourishment? Do you allow for encourage movement? You know, I'm also a certified yoga instructor. So, you know, those things, all of that, the humanness of the experience of writing is central. Like if we don't honor and acknowledge our human needs first, nothing else is getting done. And I think we often lose sight of that. So, you know, I know my graduate students would say, because they're going to participate in the marginal syllabus project as well this, this month, especially, and hopefully they'll continue. Um, they know I don't come into a classroom without snacks, you know, with food or so, you know, and drink. Cause I just think, um, and it might be a cultural thing, you know, like you come to my house, the first thing I'm offering you something to drink, something to eat, you know, and that was how I was raised. And so I, I see that as be, being very central to my pedagogy as a teacher when I think about how I cultivate the space. So. <clears throat> so, and, in my sort of like initial, um, and I'm gonna go somewhere. I want to use an analogy. I'm a student of um, Ebony Thomas, who I know is a good friend of yours, Dr. Haddix, and uh, she, you know, loves fandom. So I'm gonna try this analogy, and I'm gonna hope it works. Okay. Um, so one of the terms, or a couple terms that came up for me was like underground writers, or and I think towards the conclusion, you talk about teaching like within the shadows, the shadows of school expectations and this sort of like underground. And I, I think Remy even brought up the idea of like this, these consequential spaces and how that happens in like the underground and on the shadows. And it, it, it got me thinking about um, there's this, you know, band of mutants within the X-Men um, called the Morlocks, right? The, and the Morlocks society, if you think of the X-Men as the sort of like over like very visible leaders of mutant struggle who are looking to sort of like change the minds of humanity around we can create this sort of like peaceable environment the morlocks are more like oh we're creating this whole different space underground and we don't want nothing to do with the humans and we're not trying to convince them of nothing what we're trying to do is eat and what we're trying to do is survive and we know how to do that by you know um, you can think of like these ideas of uh, fugitivity or, or marinage that the sort of like Morlocks represent. And when I think about writing and like youth writing and radical youth writing, and there's a way in which sometimes it can be sort of like more visible as long as it gets bridged towards these ideas of achievement or assessment or expectation that makes sense of like, yes, talk about radical ideas, but put it in a college essay, right? and not talk about ways that you're speaking to like present realities that's happening within your communities, present struggles or pains that you're walking, like, walking through. So when I think about like writing for our lives and I think about those consequential spaces, I think about how these things happen within like the shadows of schools. I think as a, as a teacher, I taught like a language arts course, I was a librarian and tech coordinator for a school. And I think like the most special conversations that I would like, take, you know, I would steal ownership of, I guess, you know, in a sense, it would be like, when I see young people in the hallways who are talking about the, what we talked about in class, just like in like a very sort of like social, non-committal, I'm not writing about this sort of way. I feel like those were like the most 
like what I felt like achieved as a teacher is like when you walk through the cafeteria and you're like, what was that thing when he was talking about racism in the classroom? I don't know where that was going. I was like, that is what, that is why I teach. To have those moments contribute to like these shadow spaces that happen in schools and shadow spaces that happen um, that are not like particularly tied to these like academic trajectories, but tied to like our like daily lived experiences. And I think that within um, the write-up of, 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 of the Writing for Our Lives project, you point to that. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear about like that experience of like working outside of school expectations. You know, the, so a couple of things. One, I feel like the, the universe blessed me with, with a child who challenges all these ideas for me. My son, and just learning from him over now the last 17 years and his, his learning trajectory, um, if I ever question anything, I just need to go observe or talk with him and it puts me in check immediately. Academic measures, the traditional, they're not enough for this generation. They really don't care about these things. Like it's, it's really interesting for me, and I, and I shouldn't say all, but the young people that I work with, including my own child who goes to a public school, um, you know, I've talked to him about he's now at the age where we have to start thinking about college and all that. And he will say, you know, I don't know about college. I, I, don't, see, I, don't, see the I don't see the point of the investment because I don't see how college, the way that it's currently configured is gonna challenge me, <laughs> you know, that it's gonna provide a space for me to do the kind of learning and interaction around you know, critical issues and ideas that I see happening in these other spaces. So y'all gotta convince me, y'all gotta bring something better. You know, in New York, we have regions. Regions, test scores, okay. You know, I, I can do that if you ask me to do it, but that's not, that's not why I'm invest, invested in these things. That's not my motivation for doing these things. It's much, much greater for the young folks that, that I see um, that I work with in schools and outside of schools. Um, and so for me, you know, I just, I think about how, I'm just thinking of a young person from Monday night, he had his, his poetry, his writings on his phones, because they they, they're composing in all these, these spaces that teachers may never see. They may never see these spaces. And, you know, he wanted to come up and, and just recite a poem off the dome. Like he just came, he's like, okay, I got one for you. And we all just sat there like, and you that level of brilliance, teachers would never see because the current uh, traditional measures aren't, aren't calling for it. Is, is they aren't necessarily inviting them all the time. So as teachers, I think we have to be very intentional about just because a kid, because my kid, I'm gonna tell you, and his teachers will often say to me, does he talk? I'm like, well, yeah, you know, he's at, he, the comics, and that's him. He's in a whole nother universe. But I, he sent me an essay over the last week. He wrote an essay, uh, a critical analysis of a video, self-destruction. Those of you that are old hip hop heads will remember this video. What is 17 years old? <laughs> self-destruction. Okay, <laughs> but I, Right, but he did his essay. It was an essay that he wrote. Um, I forget what critical lens he was asked to use, but that was the text that he wanted to analyze. And I'm reading the essay, I'm in at the conference and I said, well, send it to me. I really wanna hear what you got to say. And I said to my partner later, I was like, he, he didn't write that. Like I'm sitting here like, there's no way. But if you provide a space for kids to have choice, 
invite them to, you know, you, you pick, you know, um, you'd be, you'd be surprised, you know, and you'd be surprised that just by opening up that space, um, and verse versus us putting limits on what they have to do. Um, because they, they're, they're, these kids are, they're wicked. I mean, in terms of just the way that they're understanding the world, the way they're understanding politics right now, the, the discourse that's happening on the public level, we, we would, we're ill-advised to ignore how these things are affecting and impacting them on a regular basis. And writing is, is the way, you know, writing is a way for them to share. Um, and they're probably writing more. I think about my generation because we didn't have social media and digital tools when I was growing up. Kids are now composing more regularly. Um, we probably talk more on the phone. So we were composing our ideas, but in terms of the actual putting ideas together and, and com- they're doing it on a, a more uh, organic and natural level than I would say I ever did when I was a young person. So, but yeah, I, I think there's those, those kids where I say like they have their, their writings, their pieces in their pockets, you know, and um, unless you are relation, relational and create a relationship with the kid to, you'll never even know all that they're doing um, beyond the school expectations. And by the way, I love X-Men. That's my favorite Marvel. <laughs> so, so I love the analogy. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all agree that the analogy worked, Chris. So. Can I, can I ask a question for everyone? Because I'm, I'm just seriously taking notes here, and I just so appreciate everyone's, everyone's thoughts and thinking. And I, I, I guess I have a question around this idea of, We've talked about cultivating space, of holding space, of of working in honoring and bringing forth maybe some of these liminal underground shadow spaces. And I wonder for listeners of of this webinar, uh, folks who may watch this, how might they attune to some of those spaces if they perhaps in their day-to-day maybe are not familiar with some of those spaces or the kinds of literacies that exist there, uh, if they don't maybe know how to do the kind of observations, Marcel, Marcel, that you were just mentioning, how to how to listen to and look for new expressions of what counts as composition, what counts as authorship. How might how might educators perhaps or others begin to look for cultivating, begin to look for holding, begin to kind of look for honoring these kinds of liminal spaces? Does that does that make sense? Does that maybe yeah. resonate? No, it does. And I'd be curious to hear, because I, I think, Michelle, you talked about the radical listening. The, the thing that I, the starting point for me always is starting with the self, you know, and as teachers, as educators, we need to, our point of departure should not be to immediately place the lens on, well, what are you doing? Let's go in as ethnographers and put the, the lens on them and just study and observe. It's like we're anthropologists or something, right? Um, or, or tourists in youth spaces. That's, that is not the goal here. I feel like students will begin to have a rapport with you once they see that you also are critically reflecting on your own positionality as a writer, as a reader. And I think teachers, and that's what I love about the National Writing Project, teachers often, um, in our, even in our teacher education programs, we are not focusing on them needing an opportunity to become writers. 
You know, they, they first have to understand how they function as writers, what their needs are as writers, what kinds of spaces they need in order to, to, to write, to compose, um, what types of things they like to read. So one of the things that I do in my class often, um, we look at, we do an analysis of like writers and their spaces. And so we'll look at someone like Jerry Pinckney or Jacqueline Woodson and, and look at what their physical spaces look like where they write, you know, or uh, what conditions they need to have in place for them to write, what kind of engagement they need in a revision process. You know, those of us that are academics, we participate in review processes where, you know, you're getting critical feedback, how you respond to it, how you engage back and forth, how you listen to what people might be sharing with you, how you serve as someone who reviews and provides feedback. Like, I think first it requires sort of this meta cognitive awareness about how we engage in the writing process before we even begin to think about what young people may or may not be doing. Um, and I think, you know, when you come into a space, so one thing that we do not allow in writing our live spaces, you cannot just come into the space and just sit. And you can't just say, well, I'm an adult, so I'm just gonna come in and sit down and observe, you know, this is not a space for surveillance. I mean, kids are, are being surveyed enough in schools. This is not a space for that. Everybody that's in the space participates. We engage, we read each other's work, we share. So, you know, if teachers can begin to create a space where it's a community of writers, themselves included, and not them just teaching or assigning writing and then stepping back and letting the kids or the students do what they're gonna do, but they still have to be a part of the actual process. That's the modeling that happens where, you know, I know that my child didn't become a strong reader and a writer because we sat him down and we direct instructed him to do those things. He did it because he saw his father and I constantly reading and writing. So he's in a, in a culture that's the practice in our home. So it, it, it's a community that that's what everybody does in that community. And teachers have to also feel empowered to be able to be, to be participants in their writing communities and not just the, you know, conductors of it, so to speak. So hopefully that helped. I mean, I don't know if that answered. Yeah. So I'm a teacher and I'm using my wait time because I want to make sure not to talk over Michelle or Chris. Oh, Michelle. Oh, I feel Chris might, I'll, I'll come in after Chris. I can't have a brother drop another metaphor on me and just. <laughs> I love. I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I'll say more about that later. Uh, 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 the radical listening part, I, I definitely wanted to get to. I think for me, uh, one thing that I did want to acknowledge, and maybe that I'm not, or I'm growing to be better at it, is also like recognizing that these, uh, or like these underground spaces, or these shadow spaces, these spaces that you cultivate are like contested spaces. They are not meant for you as a teacher to enter. And I think it's important for uh, educators, uh, us to like realize that. I know there's this, you know, huge debate around like empowering students or, uh, and it's like, no, if you took a step back and, you know, did that self work, you would realize the power that these young people already have and the power that they're using to create these alternative spaces. Um, to what's going on. I think for me as a teacher, one of the biggest realizations is like, 
what I'm teaching is probably not the most important thing going on in their lives today. Um, and when you, when you think about that and you think about how you approach um, a learning subject or, or how you teach a text in the classroom or just the different opportunities that you ask as part of a writing prompt, you begin to say, well, how can I, how can we make this useful, right? Um, for young people's experience today, right? And then, so that becomes a negotiation process and how you uh, develop out the uh, work of the classroom. And it's not something that uh, can be imposed on it, but it's rather like a negotiation that has to happen through, you, through uh, a conversation, through a dialogue with young people in your course around um, what, what, what's useful about what we're doing today and how can it make an impact on how you walk in, in the world on, on a daily basis. I think so. I think it's really important to honor that um, these spaces that you've created are not always interested in having us there. And that is really important too. And it gives us a lens into youth agency, youth organizing, youth resistance. Um, that when, like, when we engage in radical listening, um, we can really help to build out our classrooms in a really uh, special way. Um, I told my daughter that I wanted to be jiggy with the young people, and she's like, please don't ever say that. Um, so <laughs> just like, I was cool back in the 80s. <laughs> to your point about uh, are we invited in the spaces, are we invading the spaces? Um, but one, and coming back to what Marcel said, is first how we hold ourselves. And I like what Parker Palmer said, he, we teach who we are, you know, first and foremost. And um, And so when I think about writing, you know, uh, with my colleague Nick Kazmarek, who's with, also with the Western Pennsylvania Writing Project, we co-taught a class called Cultural Literacy. We did all the writing assignments. Um, if there was a free, we did free write, we did the formal thing. So, uh, and all the ways that we expanded on writing. So some writing didn't, wasn't about points or how to do things, it was just writing and sharing. And we saw ourselves as part of a community of writers. So I think if that's what we value, then we have to practice. Um, being a community of writers uh, and how we talk about writing, but also what text. Um, and so I love the idea of video games are a text, right? Movies are a text. Um, so expanding our our idea of what uh, texts are available to analyze, critique, respond to, to be in dialogue with. Um, and so I think like at the very simplest level, what is our individual practice? We can't have an aspiration to have people want to love writing if we don't practice it ourselves um, and that we, that some things don't have a value like, uh, you know, a grade, because I feel like once you put a grade on things um, and that's a whole other thing, let's do uh, a marginal syllabus on grades and <laughs> grading. Um, we in fact sometimes are working uh, in um, against the very aspirations that we have in terms of learning. Um, and I think also perhaps for us to be curious. I mean, what kind of questions do we ask um, uh, to really have an understanding of what's going on in the lives of young people and, and asking what they're, what they're doing. But really to like, um, I feel like a lot of questions in schooling are ones that we already have answers to. Um, but I, one of my favorite questions right now is like, what do we need to learn as humans? So leave it at that. Yeah, I think with the radical listening um, and, and being able to step back and really hear 
and understand what young people, like whatever the invitation from them might be, because yeah, these spaces, they, they may not want you and they may not want to share their stories with you right now. They may not want you in particular spaces. Um, but one of the things that I found, let me step back and also being okay with, you might go into a project with particular goals and objectives because that is as teachers, that's what we do. <laughs> we set learning objectives and teaching objectives. But if you really are trying to shift what you do to be youth-centered, then you have to understand that those objectives may not work in a particular time and moment um, when you think about a youth-led writing space. And so I remember when we first started um, writing our lives and when I first began offering writing workshops at the library, um, you know, I, I was thinking of it I certainly, I think, went into it with, okay, you know, I want to create space for young people to come and, and write about whatever their experiences or whatever, whatever. And I quickly learned that they don't need me to tell them to do that. <laughs> They're doing that already. But when I stepped back to hear what they needed me for, they were like, well, can you just show us how we, where we put our commas? <laughs> you know, can you just show us like, because we got, we got the ideas. We got the things we want to write about. We got the audiences that we want the stuff to go out. We got all that figured out. But there might be some little technical things that, you know, this is why we have invited you into this space. Like, this is, this is why you're, you're okay. And we see you as a resource for these things. And I think what, what I saw happening, and this was very early on in this particular moment, was there was a, a relational, like, trust that was developing between me and the students who were coming to this Writing Our Lives space that there was, I don't want to use, I don't know, for lack of a better term, safe, but I, safe always is questionable. But they felt okay asking me questions around grammar and punctuation that they might not always feel comfortable speaking out. And these were mostly black boys. I'll say that too. They might not also feel comfortable speaking out about these things in the classroom spaces that they found themselves in, where there's often a lot around you know, who can speak out and show any type of vulnerability about what they, what they know or, or need to know. And so I, I, that was a, a first learning for me in terms of just stepping back. Yeah, I might, you don't want to go in and impose what, what you think they need, but realizing that in this time, in this moment right now, this is what they need. That may change tomorrow. That may change in 15 minutes, but you have to be really in tune and present with who you have in the space and be flexible enough to shift as needs shift and as desires shift. Um, and I think that's something that oftentimes the current ways that schools are set up and classroom teaching is set up, it doesn't allow for that kind of flexibility. Um, it doesn't allow for, for people to, you know, for teachers to feel like they can step back from whatever script or lesson plan they, they have set up for the day. Um, to really honor what it is students might say that they need. And I, and I really appreciate, Chris, you also saying in terms of, I learned very quickly on too, I, and I, I moved away from that. And a lot of my research, I talk about this, like it's not my place to say I'm giving voice to, or I'm, you know, no, I, I might be invited into, you know, I might, I, I can bring some resources, but they, but again, I understand that those things may or may not be what is needed at the time and being willing to go in 
as a writer myself and say, hey, I, want, I also want to learn with you. I also want to write with you and myself being vulnerable and willing to share in those spaces. And I think, you know, we don't talk enough about the risks and vulnerability for teachers. Um, kids are expected to do it all the time. Kids do it all the time. And so I think we owe it to them also to think about what, we, what risks we also can take. So I did want to interject with, with something. I was, I was wondering as we talk about like the way teachers might uh, engage with youth in these types of spaces and then um, also the way teachers might uh, investigate all the learning and you know literacies that that um, are present in those spaces we're not invited to. I guess I I was I want to know what folks think about sort of like uh, your your gui your guiding principles for any writing program. So I, I was practicing my screen share to see if you guys would actually be able to see what I what I'm posting from the article. So I'm going to try that really quickly. I just want to know if you guys would talk back to them briefly. Uh, I can, uh, one quick thing that comes up for me and kind of going off Dr. Haddock's idea that everybody must participate is um, uh, Lauren Hill, one of my favorite performers, uh, even still, <laughs> um, I think that needs to be said, uh, has this thing about, um, she says, uh, on, on her unplugged album, she says, all my songs are me first. Um, if they don't do the work for me, I don't, it, I can't, I, I, I don't see myself putting it out there for our audience and expecting it to do the work for them. Um, so like kind of like really hone in on that teachers must be writers idea and that, you know, we must model uh, the vulnerability, the uh, practices toward like self-transformation that we like look to or want to instill in the next generation. So that we must be those radical listeners. Uh, we must be ones who are always sort of acknowledging or, you know, reckoning, reckoning with our past um, and not sort of like seeing ourselves as any sort of like, you know, perfect uh, models or that students want to be who we are, um, but just showing through our path that we're always on a trajectory of learning. So I think it's, it's really important uh, that when we offer up, you know, prompts in class or we're asking for those sort of like consequential questions that we're really um, doing that work and showing that work um, and, you know, uh, and so that we can see people take that up in like a very real and honest way. Um, a couple of things that come up for me, and that is this uh, wrestling with empowerment versus power. And um, I find sometimes as teachers, like when kids actually already have the power and then I want to empower them, it is disempowering, <laughs> you know, because it's like, you know, they might, you know, it's, you can just be in school mode and it's like someone shares something with you and you're like, oh, let me uh, fix your grammar. Let me, do, you know, all these things that are like, oh, the, these are like my helping um, and what I think to be helping. I think that's partly the struggle. 
I feel in a bind, right? I, I want to cultivate and support student voice and choice. And I also feel constrained by the society that we live in, right? That looks at grammar, looks at form in some ways. And so um, it's like, how do you play, you know, hold your voice, but also learn how to speak in different spaces but ultimately i'm like i'll oh, just be yourself <laughs> just go go the path of lauren hill and uh and uh and uh i like this what are they called the more um i wrote it down morlocks, morlocks. yes go the way of the morlocks <laughs> maybe that's a little too radical for today well yeah and before we leave my fabulous uh excerpt here i i have been he listening to this conversation thinking how important it is when when the second point says students must see themselves as writers and how much the last point that teachers must honor and respect youth-led and youth-centered writing practices is really key to helping students see themselves as writers because the students who are walking out with a's on their papers all the time already see themselves as writers it's the students who who you know aren't inviting adults into the space where they might actually be composing some really important stuff that could translate to other fields and other content areas and other interests. That's a place where teachers have a very important translation role. And I think that the text helps surface that, as has this conversation. You know, if, if, it's, if it's welcome, and someone please tell me to shut up if I start to ramble. I'm going to try and keep this concise, but I'm really impressed at the sense of, of, of actually kind of wrestling and conflict that's, I think, endemic to this conversation. It is, I think, distinct from some of our other marginal syllabus conversations and webinars that we've had with authors previously. I think that one of the really distinct uh, gifts, Marcel, that this uh, article has given to me, uh, and maybe is coming up in different ways in this conversation now, is that the work of, of an educator to, to do that kind of self-work, as has been noted earlier, um, and to ask questions that really kind of cut to the core of the purpose of maybe me as an educator. You know, Michelle, you mentioned a few moments ago, I think you asked the question, you know, what do we need to learn as humans? And I think, you know, what do we need if, if, we, if we are to call ourselves an educator and if we are to say, I perhaps have the privilege of, of learning alongside and working with, uh, with youth in whatever the setting is, uh, what is it that I really need to learn myself? What's the self-work that I need to do? And I think that there's uh, some real wrestling. And, and, and Marcel, you did mention the word positionality earlier in our conversation. Um, and I, I just want to recognize that, the, that this conversation and this reading has impressed upon me, maybe more so than some of our other conversations, that, that to work with youth, perhaps to even consider whether we are invited, as Chris, you just mentioned a few months ago, into those spaces. And as you also said, Chris, to notice that those spaces can be very contested. Uh, and fraught with confidence themselves, we got to do some work with with ourselves. And I would explicitly say that that is a an invitation to other maybe educators who look like me, who may be white men in particular, or who or who whoever they may be, hold a lot of power in formal learning spaces to do the kind of work that's being called forth in in this conversation. I'll, I'll leave that there. Yeah, you know, I I appreciate you saying that because I think you know that's a that's an active exercise. It's a constant exercise that we all have to engage in. And I do think that the writing classroom 
um, and also writing spaces beyond school context, um, they push us to do that. At least that's what my own lessons and learning over the last soon to be 10 years with this particular project, um, that's what it's done for me. It, 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 it has uh, constantly challenged me to think about my own sense of self as a writer. And it's also helped me to, um, because I see this, my own self as being a part of a community, I've had to invite more people in. Right. And so like our after school program, I don't have a lot of experience in digital composing, but I know people that do. I'm not a photographer, but I know photographers. I'm not the best spoken word poet, but I know a whole lot of spoken word poets. So our writing our lives spaces, we invite other writers and artists and community members in to also enact these writer identities because we all need, you know, mentors in the work. We all need partners and collaborators in the work. And so I think if teachers take the ownership or feel like the full responsibility and ownership is just on them to be, then I think that's a misstep. I think we have to start thinking about schools and classrooms is moving beyond the, the four walls, but inviting many, many people to come in and be a part of that, you know? So uh, the last unit that we just finished was, was spoken word poetry and uh, Michael po Mike, Mike the poet, Michael Gall, he's also known as the real painting poet here in Syracuse, did this poetry and painting activity with the young people. That's not something that I could, could have done, but I can show them my students that I'm not the only knowledge producer in this space. We all bring gifts and knowledges to the space and skills and things that we want to learn more about, we can invite people to come in. And I think that's also the wonderful thing about now the ways that um, digital spaces and online spaces exist in online networks where you don't have to just be relegated to your classroom in terms of resources, but you can engage and, and, you know, tweet out to authors and writers or to read different blogs. And, you know, I have so many, um, you know, one of my favorite writers right now, just an example, you said Pittsburgh. I love Damon Young. Like I could read his writing and just study the ways that the, the twists and turns and his use of language. And, you know, I'm learning as a reader. He doesn't know it, but he mentors me in terms of the, his, his boldness and unapologeticness and the way that he writes. And I think our young people need, need that. So when they read, reading as, as, you know, what can I learn from this person? How are they teaching me about their craft as writers? And how can we move beyond some of the canonized ways that we think about whose text matters in schools to give our students opportunities to learn from a diverse array of composers and writers and artists? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, um, I put in a graphic that has really deeply influenced my teaching and it's about lifelong, life-wide learning and basically says that less than 20% of learning happens in formal spaces. And so I think for a long time, we've been activated by scarcity. We have a limited amount of time to get all this stuff done and I have to be the expertise and all these things. But then when you're like, I don't know, yeah. There's learning can happen in so many spaces and it doesn't have to happen with me. In fact, if I've designed learning so that you only need me to learn, then I have failed you. 
because um, it hasn't activated that sense that you too have something to offer. And so I think the uh, what you talk about, Marcella, is, is really acting from a place of abundance. Like look within our own community, our own like writers right here in the space that we're with, but even in the city of Syracuse, but even the fact that you're connecting to people in Pittsburgh and uh, we've already dropped a Lauren Hill and X-Men and, you know, that's like, you know, it's just like, whoa, that's, that's exciting. And that, that's a different space to operate from as opposed to thinking I have lack um, and that I feel we act in different ways when we act out of scarcity. I know. So one of the things that I wanted, to, well, I guess it's, it's kind of, you know, leading into my final thoughts. Um, so yesterday, um, along with the Philadelphia Student Union and the Alliance for Educational Justice, uh, we spent the day in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, first taking the streets um, from the Department of Education um, to the House building to uh, talk about, like, the campaign for police-free schools. Um, and I want to share... Um, for this quick, like, little book commercial for KSA Layman's Heavy. It's just something I got laying around. Brought up Damon Young, and I was like, okay, hold up. I got to bring up something, too. But, um, yeah, so one of the young people uh, who came with us on the trip, we started off at breakfast, right? And the first thing she said, uh, she's like, I got to be honest with y'all. I just didn't want to go to school today. I'm, I'm here, and I'm listening, but I came because I just didn't want to be, like, with those people right now. And, um, but you can imagine, like, we, we got a, it's a whole bunch of work going on, right? So we're coming there, we're doing these speeches. Um, then we're, like, taking the streets in Washington, D.C., heading to the house building. So this is not, like, a day off by any means. So I also feel like, what, what kind of work is that doing? Saying, I don't know, I just didn't want to go to, you're, you're doing more work than you would do in school today. But one of the things that she shared, um, so we, we do the panel, and... After the panel, we do like this open comment period. And we're in the house, right? We're in like this very esteemed government building. Um, and uh, she puts her hands up and says, I, I, got, I got something I want to say, right? And now I'm like, whoa, we weren't planning. You said you was kind of here on the side. Now this is your time and you want to step to the front of the hope. So I don't know what's about to happen. So I'm already in sort of like, I don't know what's going on. And she went on to share a story that I think was really powerful for, for two different reasons. She's at a, a, a new high school. She's a, a ninth or 10th grader. Um, and she was saying that, yeah, I got into a fight. I got in a fight at my school because I'm not. And she was like, there's like um, 50 to 60 young people in the room. She looks, she's looking around and saying, because I'm not with the whole talk back. This is not, I'm not for the disrespect. I'm, we're going to hold on. And I'm thinking of like the work she's doing there to kind of like bring young people and share her experience. But then she goes on to say, that so after that fight, like uh, police officers who are placed on every floor of her building come and they throw her against the wall, put her in handcuffs. Those handcuffs leave marks on her wrist. And what she's, what she's saying is, yeah, I got into a fight, but am I deserving to be injured by the police officers that are in my school? And I thought that that speech, particularly in the house, where in some ways we try to position young people when we're advocating for them. We try to like protect them and say, well, these are just young people and there's nothing like, they are uh, like perfect, innocent people. And she's saying that 
No, sometimes stuff happens and, and, and life happens and we engage in things. But is that to say that the systems that are set up are supposed to help destroy us too? Or are we deserving of something better? And in this sort of like radical speech act that was extemporaneous on her part, she didn't write anything down. Um, and I don't think she was planning on doing this before she got there that day. I just felt that to be such an amazing example of radical youth writing. And it talks about the experience in the, in the Philadelphia Student Union of how young people in, are organizing peer to peer and talking about these different experiences and talking about what they need, but not being beholden to like these perfect student narratives that I think sometimes we try to place when we're looking to advocate on behalf of children. So I just like, there's one thing that I was sitting with yesterday and I hope the petition that the young people put together as part of a 14 city coalition uh, follows along with this webinar was just such an amazing act for people to recognize and to think about just like the, the, the messiness of life and how we can begin to hear those messages that young people are spreading and share those, right? And work to better serve their needs. Yeah, you know, I think the listening, you know, and realizing that it's not, that, that, that there's still opportunities for us to learn. You know, if we go in already thinking that we know everything or we understand uh, youth experiences in a particular way, um, there's so much that we miss out on. And so I think it, it also is a shifting of our own sense of how we engage around learning and around knowledge production. Um, because, yeah, I mean, they, what you just described, she had a very critical and nuanced understanding of her relationship to the police state right? It was expressed. And, and also into her understanding around schools and, and school spaces and how schools control bodies and control, control lives, um, and in particular bodies and lives. Um, and so I, I'm one, I just, I'm always just um, like, just as so it's, it's such strong support of young people, because I really believe that the revolution and the movements will happen because of the youth. The youth. It's not because of us. <laughs> and they are in these schools and experiencing these situations, um, you know, every day having to go through uh, being policed throughout their school day. And at the same time, as she points out, being expected to learn and to do all these things. And should, I, should these two things it coexist in these same spaces? Um, and so that's something that we either can continue to ignore what they're telling us, or, or listen and change it. And we have the power to change it. So I, I will be signing the petition and I hope that more people will, will support our young people in doing this work because it just, it, it, the fact that we've gotten to a point today where police are in schools in the ways that they are and no one, everybody just seems to think that that's the norm, that that's just okay. So I'm happy that they're flipping the script and turning that over. So, I'm going to jump in here, although I am hesitant to do so. Chris, you kind of talked about everybody maybe wanting to come to a last point. However, what you shared is not a place where I would normally want to wrap the conversation at all. Uh, so I'm going to basically thank folks because I am looking at the clock because I got to run upstairs and teach a group of teenagers. I'll mess up some of these ideas we've talked about in about three minutes. So, but Ramey is capable of ending, of facilitating the close of this conversation. 
So I just want to thank everybody. And if you all are feeling like you're at a place to wrap the conversation, you can. But if I duck out, it's because teenagers await. Thank you. I, I uh, first of all, Chris, thank you for bringing uh, the, your day, the, the daily realities, and and, and spontaneous uh, testimonials uh, to, to this conversation. I really, I really want to thank you. And if and if you have a chance to to speak with this young woman who you whose story you shared, uh, maybe you could just convey to her that many uh, you know educators were, I think, really appreciative that that her story could be shared in this space and will be shared with other people. I'm, I'm really moved by that and, and, and I'm hopeful and, and I think it does uh, resonate so strongly with this this tension that we've been discussing perhaps throughout our, our, our conversation again and as you mentioned around scarcity and abundance and you know do we do we look for the deficit narratives and reify them and then because of those quite literally police and then and then abuse and oppress people because of those notions really of, of scarcity of intelligence of humanity you know, or, or do we recognize the abundance um, of, of beauty and expression <laughs> that is there uh, if perhaps we can do, the, the, again, for some of us, do some self-work to, to, to recognize that our, our understandings of wisdom and intellect uh, and, uh, and truth-telling are, are being shared if we can open our large ears to, to indeed listen. Again, Chris, I really certainly appreciate that. Um, and we are kind of coming a little bit up onto an hour. And now, again, thanks to Joe, who had to step out and do the work of teaching, which which wrestles with many of the contradictions that we've been talking about today. Um, again, I feel like I've just been rambling a bit. So I'll just simply say that I look forward to seeing this conversation grow in, in different and divergent ways as we transition into more conversation online. We've had a number of teacher educators. And of course, Marcel, you've also, I know, invited your students to to engage and we'll see how over the course of December and in other ways people do pick up your text uh, and annotate and contribute to this. But um, final thoughts or final words, final questions or final final challenges or challenges for us as educators to pick up. I'll please turn, turn it over. And um, you know, I, first of all, I just wanted to say thank you and I look forward to the kinds of questions and, and ideas and insights that people um, provide over the course of the month. Uh, this is a whole new sort of technology and, and practice for me. So um, I'm, I'm really curious as to see how it all unfolds. And I would just invite, you know, uh, like I appreciate that Joe put those, those principles up because those are kind of the guiding ideas that I organize my teaching of, of, teachers and teacher and literacy specialists around those ideas, but they are not, you know, it's not limited to, they're not, you know, it, there are so many other ideas and principles that I think guide our individual and collective practice. And I just encourage teachers and teacher educators to try to be as transparent uh, and uh, reflexive around those practices and name them, you know, it's important to be conscious of those things so that we know what we're doing and those things that uh, affirm youth writing and those things that potentially harm youth writing spaces if we don't name them and call them out. So I would just encourage that kind of critical reflexiveness around what, what you hold to be true and to be valuable in, in the teaching of writing and in the practice of writing. 
especially with within and within youth spaces or with youth writers. Um, but I, you know, I think that for me, I, I just welcome the questions. I don't have any other final thoughts. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. I feel like I've grown a little taller because I'm like more things that are in my brain. I'm like, ooh, how can I learn more? And um, what I would offer is that, um, and what struck me, um, Chris, about the story is a quote that I really like. It says, um, the real tragedy is not that we wake up one day and, and don't achieve our dreams, that we wake up one day and realize they weren't ours in the first place. And so... I'm really interested in how young people are redefining success. I'm really interested in the spaces that we hold and that even that I thought this, what was quite beautiful about the story of the young woman that resonated that in the moment that um, she was allowed to change and evolve even within moments, right? To go from, I don't even want to be at school today. So let me drop some knowledge on the house <laughs> representatives in Washington, DC. And do we allow the space for all that for yes. And, um, and to evolve and to even be, um, surprised and transformed. So I'm looking forward to learning more from each and every one of you. Thank you. Yes. Um, if I would have to say, any final, I would, you know, definitely want to shout out Dr. Haddix and like the generation of like, particularly like black and black women scholars um, that I've sort of like been coming to learn in, grad in graduate school who have really been, you know, putting a lot of uh, amazing work to the forefront. I think of Dr. Haddix, I think of Valerie Kinlock, uh, Dr. Yolanda Silly Ruiz, um, just a, a lot of, so I think of their work and their way of working with community and sharing narratives that I think are very transformative for teachers and teacher education in general. Um, and yeah, read some more Damon Young and Casey Lehman and Jasmine Ward. Um, and I'm here in Philly, uh, Philadelphia Student Union. Um, was people who did the work yesterday. I, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I tag, if I see this webinar anywhere, with the petition that the young people have put out. The video, hopefully, from that, uh, ex from that you know, Congress session should be up or coming up soon. So be on the lookout for that as well so you can hear you know, from that student herself. And uh, yeah, thankful. Okay, and Chris, thank you. Please. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Chris and Michelle and Remy. I just really, um, oh, yes, Afrofuturism, yes. <laughs> um, I really just appreciated this, and I'm, I'm honored that you selected my text, and I hope that we all can meet face-to-face -face at some point, whether NCTE or other spaces. Um, I'm sure there will be some type of physical connection soon, so I really look forward to it. Good. Well, and again, thanks to thanks to everyone uh, today, to Michelle and Chris, our readers and respondents, for guiding us through discussion, and of course, Marcel, to to you, to Dr. Haddix for our being our partner author through the month of December in the marginal syllabus. I'll just note as we bring the webinar to a close that uh, the article uh, will be available for annotation and conversation as our focus text in December. Um, if teacher educators and others want to join in annotation beyond that, that's also very welcome. But throughout the entire month, that text will be hosted at educatorinnovator.org. 
Um, and then, of course, you can join us in January for additional conversation and through the rest of 2019. Um, the last thing I'll mention is that for any updates, uh, please subscribe to the Educator Innovator blog. You can sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org. You can also follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at innovates underscore ed. And of course, all marginal syllabus activities are curated on Twitter at the hashtag marginal syllabus. Again, thanks to Marcel, to Michelle, and to Chris. We look forward to seeing you online as well. Thanks so much, everyone.